1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God had given the children of Israel victory over the walled city of Jericho. After their initial defeat against the city of Ai, Israel repented of their sin, and God gave them victory when they returned to fight them. Word of the Israelites' victories scared the kings in the land of Canaan. They tried to band together, but the Gibeonites chose to become servants to the Israelites instead of fighting against God Almighty. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 10 verse 1.
0: Remember, the whole theme of the book of Joshua is victory in Jesus. It's a guide to how we can walk in the victory Christ purchased for us on the cross, how we can triumph over sin, how we can walk in obedience to God, experience the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord, the love of God. We can love others who are hard to love. All the things that are the fruit of the Spirit, we can have those things, they're ours in Christ, but we have to choose to walk in the Spirit, and not fulfill the desires of our flesh. Joshua is a roadmap to that, about how to do that, what to avoid. To stay away from failure and what to do to walk in the Spirit. And so tonight we're going to look at a new principle as we look at chapter 10. Now at this point in Joshua, the first nine chapters, we've seen that by conquering Jericho, Bethel, and Ai, and now entering into a treaty with the Gibeonites, Israel controls the entire central plateau of the promised land. And this drives a wedge between the northern Canaanites and the southern Canaanites, which could be conquered separately now. Rather than wait for Israel to make a move from strength, though, the southern confederation, if you remember in Joshua 9, the kings of the south, they became confederate together and they wanted to get the Gibeonites to join them. The Gibeonites refused to join. Well, they decide, we're going to attack Gibeon then. Israel will be outnumbered and they will be in the position of defending the Gibeonites rather than launching their own planned attack. So this is going to be kind of a unique situation for them. But the reality is... None of that matters because God is fighting for them. And that's the lesson that we need to learn, that God is fighting for us. We need to trust that if we're gonna walk in victory. So chapter 10, verse one, it says, "'Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, "'king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai "'and how he'd utterly destroyed it, "'as he had done to Jericho and her king, "'so he had done to Ai and her king, "'and how the inhabitants of Gibeon "'had made peace with Israel and were among them, "'that they feared greatly because Gibeon "'was a great city, it was one of the royal cities,' And because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto... Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon, and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua, unto the camp in Gilgal, saying, Slack not your hand from your servants, come up to us quickly, and save us, and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So we're introduced to this guy in verse 1 called Adonai Zedek. You may recognize one of those words, Adonai. That's one of the names that's used for God, referring to him being the Lord, the Master. In the Bible, you'll see two different kinds of Lord in the Old Testament. If you see one that's in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the word Jehovah or Yahweh, the name of God. If it just has a capital L, but everything else is lowercase. That's Adonai. Refers to him as uh, the master, the one in charge. So that's a pretty ambitious name that this guy is taking when he calls himself Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek. Zedek means righteousness. So he's calling himself the Lord of righteousness. Now that's a bit of an upgrade from King of Righteousness in Genesis 14, Melchizedek. You remember when Abraham defeated the, uh, the five kings and rescued his nephew Lot in Genesis 14. And Melchizedek came and brought wine and bread to share with Abraham. And Abraham paid him a tithe and made offerings to God. And there's this huge, interesting scene that goes on there. And I don't have time to get into that tonight. But that was the normal title of the king of Jerusalem back then. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. At some point, the name changed to, I'm not just the king of righteousness. I'm the Lord of righteousness. I'm the God of righteousness. Now, that's not uncommon back then for people to think their kings were gods, but that's who this guy is. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city of the Jebusites. It was about seven miles southeast of Gibeon, which means tactically they would be Israel's next target. I mean, if you're looking at targets in the area, Jerusalem is Israel's next target. And now Israel has allies. This guy's thinking, if we didn't need to do something before, we surely need to do it now. Because it says there in verse one, now it came to pass when Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had conquered Ai, utterly destroyed it just like he did to Jericho and her king, he did to Ai and her king. And here's the second part, how the inhabitants of Gimeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. That they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, just like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. He had no clue about the situation in Joshua 9 where the Gibeonites lied to Israel, and it's not this happy treaty where the Gibeonites became Israel's servants because they lied to Israel and tricked them. So this is not a situation where they're all happy hunky dory and friendly and and they're allies and equal partners and things like that. That's not the case at all. He has no clue about that. He looks at this and only sees is this mighty city that was a great city, even as one of the royal cities. Now, it was, didn't have a king, Gibeon didn't have a king, but its power was equal to those cities of the Amorites that, that did have a king. And the Gibeonites were Jebusites as well. So these were people that he knew really well. As we saw in Joshua 9 that Gibeon was a wealthy, thriving city. And that meant it had a well armed and well trained armed force. So Adonizedek believed Gibeon an important part of their coalition. It would be devastating if they remained allied. Israel. And so he, wherefore, verse 3, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sends unto these other kings and says, we got to attack now. Before we get into that whole thing, I do have a question. Why not just repent? Like, why not just repent? Why not sue to the God of Israel for mercy? Well, because he's Adonai Zedek. He's the Lord of his own life and everyone else's life in Jerusalem. He's a God unto himself and he refuses to get off that throne. Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19, 18 is a verse most of us are familiar with. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, an arrogant attitude. But verse 19 says this, Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Isn't that a good contrast? Better to, you know, be of a humble in spirit with the lowly, those who are not considered the highborn of society, than it is to divide the spoil with the proud. This man, this prideful man, it says, wherefore, verse 3, Adonizedek he communicated with these other kings. And verse 4 says, come up with me. I'm going to attack Gibeon. Come up with me and help me that we may smite Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Now, these other four kings that are mentioned here, they were kings of other royal cities in the southern region of the Promised Land. And there were other kings, royal cities in that area of the Amorites, but for whatever reason, he lists the eight of these four. I don't know if they're the four strongest. We can't know that. Um, some of these places are very well known by archaeologists, and then others, they, they only know so much. Most people believe because these guys were the strongest kings. But these four kingdoms, they form kind of, if you look at a map, you can see this, but they form kind of a bowl in the southern region of Canaan. Again, it's not every everyone but it pretty much encompasses most of that area, the influence that these guys had. And now it's interesting, their goal isn't to hit Israel. They don't think they can do that successfully without Gibeon. Their goal is either to subdue Gibeon to their side or eliminate them from being allies. So verse 5, therefore these five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, king of Eglon. they gathered themselves together and they went up, they and all their hosts, their armies, and they encamped in front of Gibeon. They laid siege to the city of Gibeon and made war against it. Now again, I'm not sure why this would work. Israel's only about twenty. 4 hours away their troops and Gibeon is easily defended at an elevated height of 2400 feet it's not like the Gibeonites feared this coalition more than Israel because they tricked Israel to make a deal with them rather than join this coalition instead they do their best to fend off the attacks while sending to Israel for relief verse 6 so the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp at Gilgal saying do not slack your hand from your servants Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for these guys have surrounded us. The word there, slack not, means don't abandon, don't withdraw your support now. And, and they had every reason to think that Israel would, because Israel could very easily go, you know what, those jerks lied to us. Now we're, we're in bed with them, we're, we're in this treaty with them right now, and you know we'll just let these guys take care of them and then we're done. So these guys say, hey, remember we made a deal? Don't abandon us now. Don't withdraw your support now. See, the Gibeonites might have been in a strong and a good defensive situation, but they would not last forever against five armies. Now, Joshua, he had an obligation to help them, even though they're Israel's servants. And I imagine there were some in Israel who might've thought, you know what? They're getting what they deserve for lying to us. But if anyone thought that, Israel didn't act on that thought. Verse seven, so Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Now, Gilgal is in the Jordan River Valley. You literally have to climb into the mountains, the mountainous desert hillside to get to Gibeon. If you go to Israel with us, you'll see just how much of an incline it is. So they had to go up in there. If I'm Joshua, and it's good I'm not, but if I'm Joshua, I'd be thinking, great. I don't think this was part of God's plan, but we didn't seek God about these people who claimed to be from a far country and who heard about our God and they wanted to join us and make an alliance with us. We didn't seek the Lord. We just figured, oh, their bread's old and their shoes are worn out and whatever. They must not be part of the Canaanite that we're here to, to judge. We didn't seek God and now we're paying for it. Now we're in a fix. I would even be tempted to think God wasn't with me because I'm the one who put myself in this mess. Have you ever felt that way? Man, so many times I feel that way. I'll get in a situation, I think, oh, I bet this is happening because I did this. Bet this is happening because I did this. It's happening because I did it. I'm just reaping what I've sown, so it's not like I can even go to God for help because I brought it upon myself. That's a pretty ugly circle, isn't it? With no hope, with no sense of moving forward or how to fix it. You ever felt that way? Well, don't anymore, because God is far, far more gracious than you could ever imagine. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into your hand, and there shall not a man of them stand before you. Listen, I don't know what Joshua's thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us what Joshua was thinking. I don't know if Joshua felt the way I've just described to you or not, but I do know this. He wasn't confident. He was afraid because God never says, do not be afraid unless people are afraid. He never says that unless they're afraid. Now, why doesn't he need to be afraid anymore? For I have delivered them into your hand. Not I will deliver them into your hand. I already have delivered them into your hand. God wasn't going to just fight for Joshua when they got there. He was already fighting for Joshua. Now you might be saying, wait a second, they did this to themselves. Why would God fight for them? Turn to Psalm 103 verse 8. Now the whole Psalm is good, but I just want to read a few verses starting with verse 8 to you. Let him sink in, lest you think I'm just grabbing a verse and just saying, oh, well, there's other verses in the Bible, Pastor Will. The way this starts off, what I'm gonna read to you, was the answer to the question that Moses asked, show me your glory, show me what you're like. I wanna see you in the best way that I can humanly see you. I wanna see you in the way that I know I'm not capable of understanding you fully, but I wanna understand you in the best way a human being can. And when God passed by, he declared this, the Lord is merciful doesn't give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Not getting what you deserve. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is receiving what you haven't earned. Slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Abounding in, this is a different word. The word here for mercy is chesed in the Hebrew. It's his loyal love, his unwavering devotion to us. The Lord is abounding in his love and devotion to us. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And like as a father pities his children for, so the Lord pities them that fear him, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Did you hear that? He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And even when he's upset because of our behavior and our, our wickedness, our selfishness, he's not going to stay that way forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He pities us like a father does his child because he knows that we're just dust. Isn't that good news? That's awesome news. That's why you don't ever have to feel that way. Why would God fight for them? It's really simple. He loves them. He's merciful. Yeah, they messed up, but he's gracious. He gives us what we haven't earned. They might be saying, was well, not that just permission to sin all we want? If God will just clean up my mess every time I blow it, then why try to not blow it? That's pretty stressful, isn't it? Seems less stressful. Well, Romans 2 verse 4 tells us that that's a foolish idea. Versus don't you realize that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance? Romans 2 4 says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, patience, and long-suffering, not realizing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? God's not judging you, not disciplining you, because he's trying to draw you to change by his goodness. Romans 6 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Don't ever think that. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? For don't you realize that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Baptism symbolizes this idea that I don't want to live for myself anymore. That old life is dead, buried beneath the water. I'm a new person now. I don't want to live to please God. So, no, it's not easier or less stressful. The Bible says the way of a sinner is hard. (laughs) And if you've ever backslidden or you've ever gone your own way, you know that's true. Forgiven people are not perfect, but they humble themselves when they blow it. And Israel, when they blew it with Gibeon, they recognized their mistake of not seeking God. And despite the people's anger at being tricked, they did the right thing moving forward. Now, if you persist in unrepentance, continue to just disobey God, well, God will eventually have to discipline you. It's better to humble yourself and get back on the right path. Because that's what it says here. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. When you love what God loves and you hate what God hates, you align yourself with him, he knows you're going to blow it. He knows your frame. He knows you're simply dust. And he's merciful. He's compassionate. He loves you. He's fighting for you. As long as you stay humble. Now, can you imagine how cool it was for Joshua to hear that? He's fearful. He's thinking, oh, this is not the plan. And God's going, don't you worry about that. I've already delivered them into your hand. I'm fighting for you. There's shall not a man of them stand before you. Joshua, he was so encouraged that he marched all night to get to the enemy. Verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel. That's a, you need to have a good old King James Bible just to have the word discomfited. Sometimes if I get a little upset, my kids get discomfited. You know what the word means? It means to cause a panic or a riot or a rout. Everybody's running in different directions. I'm just joking about the kids. Maybe. Joshua came upon them suddenly, means unexpectedly. Gilgal is an eight to 10 hour trip if they didn't stop for rest, which means the army would have been tired. But it doesn't matter when God's fighting for you. They get there and all the other five kings are like, ah, they panic and they just run. The Lord disconfitted them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goes up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makedah. If you had a map, you'd be able to see that Gibeon right here, Jerusalem down here, Israel's in Gilgal over here. They come up the mountains, and all the kings are camped right here in front of Gibeon laying siege. They're all from down here. Israel comes and attacks here. The kings are here. Where would be the natural place to flee? South, back to your cities, right? Well, Beth Horon, if Gibeon's right here and their cities are all here, Beth Horon's up there. They're so discomfited they run in the wrong direction. These guys signed up to fight Gibeon, not God. And they were so panicked that they fled to the northwest away from their cities instead of south. Macada is south. Eventually they realize, hey, we are nowhere near home. And they do make the turn south when they reach the descent from that central plateau region. And they head, actually, Macada is, is just past the valley of Elah where David would later kill Goliath. You gotta imagine, again, if you're Israel, you've marched all night. That was the best map you've ever seen, by the way. Israel had been exhausted by this time and likely not able to keep pace. But again, that didn't matter because God is fighting for them. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass as they fled before Israel. Now we're going back a little bit. It gives us a summary in verse 10, but now we're gonna go back to when they first flee from Gibeon. It came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon. Now, Beth Horon is a hill pass that empties along the north-south road that, that runs along the coastline of the near the Mediterranean Sea. It is a horrible bottleneck for what's about to happen, this mountain pass. And what's about to happen? As they're coming down this mountain pass, it says that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them, unto Azekah, all the way down to Azekah in the valley, and they died. And there were more which died from the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Could you imagine the terror of being caught in this narrow mountain pass and rocks are raining down from heaven on you? Now it's not just any old rocks. You know, when we had last Sunday night, we had that horrible storm, we were all kind of stuck here. A couple people came to me and said, Pastor Will, Pastor Will, there's hail hitting the, the windows and everything. And of course, you know, the concern is gonna break the window or something like that. And we have experienced some hail here in Florida from time to time. I remember when I was I don't know, maybe fifteen, sixteen years old, we had a really bad hail storm that damaged a bunch of cars. Even then though, I don't remember the hail being massively big. But We have seen these hailstones that God judges people with before. God used this against Egypt. In Job chapter 28 verses 22 and 23, he talks about this special brand of hail that God uses uh, in certain occasions. Job 38. Hast thou entered, God asked Job, have you entered into the treasures of the snow? Or have you seen the treasures of the hail which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? God's got his own secret brew, and you don't want to experience it. It talks about how God has reserved these hail in the, in the heavens for judgment. These are unique. It's not a regular hailstorm. I don't know where he keeps it. God's God. He can just make it, so it's not an issue. But they are special hailstones that he reserves for times of judgment. Exodus chapter 9 described them as giant rocks that would shatter and then spit fire when they hit the ground, and they'd be accompanied by thunder. Terrifying. Now, under the Jewish law in the Old Testament, what was the penalty for idolatry? Stoning. Stoning. That's what God did to Egypt. Wreck their idols, the Bible says. They refused to give up their idolatry. They trusted in their own gods to deliver them from him. They're not even real gods. And here again, these Canaanites who refuse to repent. God uses hail to judge idolaters. The Bible says he'll use it again in the future against the Antichrist and those who will worship him. In Revelation 16, verse 21, it says to us, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. That's anywhere between 30 and 100 pounds, depending upon which talent John is mentioning, the Roman or the Greek talent. This is a heavy, heavy thing. And you could see when, I mean, 30-pound rocks that fall from the sky in a narrow pass, and then they spit fire whoever's nearby. I mean, it's something the special effects team couldn't come up with. Israel their army certainly fought hard, but it was God who did the most work.
1: God fights our battles. We must realize that we lack all the things necessary for us to properly defend ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Most times, we don't even know what we need to move on or through a situation. It is only when we humbly submit to God's Word and trust in His love towards us that we see victory in our lives. We fight not for victory, but from victory because it is God himself that fights for us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando.